we've been talking about mind renewal. How many have really been helped by this? How many know God wants to change how you think? If you change how you think, how many know it changes how you live? So this is lesson number four, part four on this uh, really small series. Uh, I've got a lot more to say, but we'll go that. We'll do it next year. Uh, November 24th, I gave 30 symptoms of an unrenewed mind and then 30 symptoms of a renewed mind and talked about the importance of that. December 1st, gave you four steps that will help you renew your mind with God's word. Last week, if you were here, I talked about meditation in the word and how important that is and gave out a little handout with uh, 388 scriptures that you can use and meditate, that is cogitate, revolve over and over in your thinking processes because how many know when you get the word in your heart, it will change how you live. And I mentioned, uh, I mentioned jo- uh, Joshua 1.8, this book of the law will not depart from your mouth, God said to him, but you'll meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do. Meditation gives you the ability not just to hear, but to put into practice what you hear. So if, if you come to church or you're listening to podcasts or you're listening to somebody somewhere and you're not practicing what you hear, meditation is the key. And so we talked about that in detail last week. If you weren't here, everything's on our website. And then Jesus said this, John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. The word lives in me in the measure that I practice it. Right? So I can preach it all day. And the truth is, my issue is I got a lot up here, but I need to take what's here in my head and I need to transfer it to my heart. Because when, when, when God's word gets down inside you, it changes how you think and changes how you live. How many hear what I'm saying? So today I want to go a little different direction so, uh, and, and talk about something. So um, I've, I've always thought about mind renewal. Can I just talk to y'all instead of preach? Yeah. Teach? I just want to talk. So... I'm just going to pretend like we're talking one-on-one. So, you know, mind, mind renewal really is on two different levels. I always look at it that way. First level of mind renewal is knowing the will of God. How many know your word is your will? Yes or no? What you want. If I, if I want to know what you think and what you like and what you want, I'll listen to you for a while. So if you want to know what God thinks and wants, listen to his word. Because God's word is God's will. Is that true? So if you want to do God's will, put God's word in you, right? I mean, I'm just simple, y'all. So so the first level of mind renewal really is getting my mind in line with what God thinks about my life, about my relationships, about how I think about me, about my relationship with him. What does God think about those kinds of things? What does God think, uh, you know, just in general about the, his will concerning how I relate to my spouse in marriage, how I relate to my children, what I do with my finances, what God says about my health, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's level one mind renewal. And all of us need that. Now, how many know that's an ever ongoing process? I don't think you ever get to the point, say, well, I don't need to work anymore. My mind's renewed. It just doesn't work that way. You're just constantly, because we live in a fallen world, and because there's so many negatives around, we constantly have to, have to keep God's word coming inside of us. Yes or no? Let's keep meditating. To keep our minds renewed. That's level one. But there's another level of mind renewal. And it's underlying thought patterns. And that's what I want to talk about today and show you, show you how to identify them and then show you how to change them. Let me tell you why this is important. Um, 
last yesterday, I was thinking about you last night. In fact, uh, I put this in my notes. I wasn't going to talk about it, but there are uh, three uh, references in the Old Testament where God said to the Israelites, once you come into the land of Canaan, I want you to wipe out the inhabitants, destroy all of the inhabitants of the land, the original Canaanites, because they worshiped false gods and they were depraved in how they worshiped the false gods. So I want you to destroy this culture. I mean, they were so depraved, they had awful things happening. God said, wipe all of them out. And he said, if you don't, you're going to have problems. And listen to what he said to the Israelites. Again, they wandered in the wilderness for almost 40 years, then went into the land God promised their forefather Abraham. It's the land of Canaan. And it was the promised land, they called it. But he said, you got to destroy the inhabitants. If you don't, you'll learn their ways. And here's the verbiage, Numbers 33. If you fail to drive out the people who live in the land, uh, those who remain will be like splinters in your eyes and thorns in your sides. Have you ever gotten a splinter in your eye? Just one little piece of something in your eye. And it just affects your whole day. Is that true? You can't do your work. You can't think about anything. You want to get whatever that thing is out of your eye. All of us have had that experience. And I think he said it that way because it affects life that much. If you don't deal with the inhabitants, he said, they're going to mess with you. And they're going to make life very, very uncomfortable for you. Joshua 23, he said the same thing. So be very careful to love the Lord your God. If you turn away from him, cling to the customs of the survivors of these nations remaining among you, the Canaanites. And if you intermarry with them, then know for certain the Lord your God will no longer drive them out of your land. Instead, there will be a snare and a trap to you, a whip for your backs and thorny brambles in your eyes. Said it again, then judges. Third time he said it. If God says something three times, how many know you need to pay attention? So the book of Judges, for your part, you, and God's decrying the fact they didn't obey and listen to him. Uh, for your part, you were, not, uh, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in this land, Canaan. Instead, you were to destroy their altars, but you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. They will be thorns in your sides. Hmm. And their gods will be a constant temptation to you. So how do we relate that to our life as believers today? Don't forget 1 Corinthians 10 says the things that were written in the Old Testament. Some people have written the Old Testament off. Don't do that. They're tremendous life stories. When you read about the patriarchs and how God dealt with them and what they had to deal with, they are lessons for us, 1 Corinthians 10 says. So, so what would the analogy of thorns and, and pricks in their sides of the Old Testament people, the Canaanites dwelling in the land, messing with how they live every day, how does that affect us if we fail to change the way we think? If we, change, if we fail to change... What I'm going to talk about today, the underlying patterns of thinking that really make us what we are, then you know what? It'll give you trouble the rest of your life. It'll be like having something in your eye. Or if you've ever gotten a briar or, or, or something underneath the skin somewhere in your body, and it's just this uncomfortable. It's like, ouch, you ever gotten a briar in your finger? And it's so deep you just can hardly get it out, and it's got to work its way out, and finally, you know. Finally, or sometimes you got to let somebody help you. My mama used to, I say, Mama, I got another splinter. And she, uh, I won't tell you what happened. It wasn't good. It hurt. 
But see, that's the way it'll be if we don't deal with those thought patterns. And so, underlying patterns of thinking. So, two different kinds of mind renewal. First of all, the will of God in general. Secondly, how, how God deals with you, your own personal thoughts, what you think about God, what you think about yourself, and what you think about others. So I've got seven points about this. We can get through it fairly quickly. I've got another handout to give you today. Make sure you get that at the end because it'll help you put this into practice. How many know just coming to listen to me will help you? Yes or no? I mean, I enjoy speaking, but, but it might not do anything for you unless you put it into practice. So I, I want to give you something. Uh, so anyway, uh, so six, seven things here. Number one, we have a deeper level of thinking that rules our behavior. Now look over at uh, 1 John chapter 3, um, verse 20. This is really interesting. Uh, and it says, If our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. Stop right there. Wait, what? You mean your heart? That means your inner person, your spirit nature, the real you, underlying thought pattern can condemn you when God's not condemning you. That, that means you, you have an... Un- so what is that? Underlying patterns of thought. You could call it a belief system. You could call it a personal value system. It's, it's an, an unspoken set of thoughts that make you you. And it's an unspoken set of thoughts that are always working underneath the surface that you live by every day. It's how you think other, about other people in the context of you. It's how you think about God in the context of your life, right? And it's just how you think, how you think about dealing with life in general. And those are underlying patterns of thinking. Here, uh, Passion Translation says, whenever our hearts make us feel guilty and remind us of our failures, we know that God is much greater and more merciful than our conscience. They call it their conscience. See, it's all the same, conscience. Belief system, value system, underlying patterns of thinking. See, they're things that you're not conscious of, but they're there all the time, and they give you valuations of conversations, of relationships, of how you're doing in the context of where you are, right? All of us deal with this all the time. Some people won't even come to a service like this because of their value system. Because they don't feel like they'll be accepted. Is that true? Is that true? So anyway, let's keep going forward here. Ephesians 4 says the same thing that you put off concerning the former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to deceitful lust. This is New King James. And then verse 23. So he says, put off the patterns you had from your past, verse 23, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now that's interesting. The spirit of your mind. Let's talk about underlying patterns of thinking. That make you, you. Have you ever gotten quiet enough to think about how you think about you? I have met hundreds of people that are afraid to get quiet. Because they might get in touch with how they think about themselves. So they mask it with activity. With all kind of thousand things. Right? But the spirit of your mind. He says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you may put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. So put off the old, put on the new. That is changed from the way I was to something different. How? 
by changing the, the deep thought patterns about me, the belief system, the value system, the conscience, underlying patterns of thinking. Here again, he calls it the spirit of the mind. Point two here, home is where the heart is. It's an adage used by, I think, focus on the family, maybe other ministries. James Dobson, they, they talk about home is where the heart is a lot. And uh, uh, so our personal belief system, our personal value system, it's trained mostly at home. Now, this, I mentioned this last week. Let me talk about it again. For the average person by age six, that personal belief system, that personal value system, those underlying patterns of thinking, the spirit of your mind, how you relate to your environment, it's already, it's already set by age six. Is that scary or not? Wow. And you know, we often take those patterns right on into life. It's amazing. So I could go a lot of different directions with this, but do you see the importance, parents? Don't just bring your children to church. Be who you're supposed to be at home when the doors are shut. And when nobody's looking or listening, that's what they're becoming. I mean, I told people when my kids were at home, you want to know what I'm like? Watch my kids. If I want to see what you're like, I shouldn't say, watch your kids. <laughs> I know, yeah. yeah. Now watch this, you know, but it does, they do reach a point when they become responsible for themselves and leave your home. You got to make sure that you don't condemn yourself because of the choices your children make. Huh? Now you right, tra- ra- train them right, raise them right then they're responsible for what they do with what they receive. Some people don't want to do what they should do with it, and they're responsible. And mama and daddy can't change that, but they can pray. And God answers prayer. I said that because there's a number of people, you're beating yourself up because of your children. Stop in Jesus' name. Just quit. And, And turn that loathing, that aggravation, that anger at yourself and others, anger towards your child into prayer. And ask God to work a miracle. In fact, Father, right now I'm going to stop. I pray for the, every child represented by a person sitting in a seat here. An adult child. I'm asking, Father, for the grace of God to go into every home. Into every child's life. Where they are. Where they're working. Where they're living. Draw them in Jesus' name. Cause them to become sensitive to you once again. And I ask you for every person in this room and listening, may the Spirit of God work again in homes, in families, in children, in extended families, in their children's homes, in their children's marriages. Work a miracle. In Jesus' name. How many would agree? So you need to, man, hit that trail every day. But don't wallow in it and feel bad about it, right? So by age six, that's a big one, 85% of adult behavior firmly set by our sixth birthday. That's interesting, isn't it? So, uh, you know, again, uh, Deuteronomy 6, we mentioned it last week. God told the Israelites, he said, talk about me when you get up, when you sit and lie down, when you walk around, when you're eating, when you're doing your stuff. Talk about me. Why? Because they're setting patterns for life in their children by what they say and what they do. Now, listen to this. A lot of people have dysfunctional lives and they're comfortable in it because that's what they know. 
So that's the reason the point number two says home is where the heart is. Now I've met people, now I could give you, I don't have time, but I could give you lots of stories about people who are living in abusive relationships where a spouse is abusing them or in various ways they're being taken terrible advantage of in the home life, talking about marriage here. Or they're allowing people to do this, that, or the other at work, and it shouldn't be that way. But they let it go on because home is where the heart is. You're most comfortable with what you're familiar with. And if you've got dysfunction, how many know what dysfunction is? Well, if something's not working right, if it's working right, it's functional. If it's not working right, it's dysfunctional, right? Not necessarily a biblical word, but there's a lot in the Bible about it, right? But a lot of people are comfortable with things not working right because they don't know any other way to live. I've had people leave my office over the years. And I know when they get home, they'll have a barrage of words that are horrible and nasty and vulgar. But they're willing to live there. They're willing to, to not say anything because that's what they're comfortable with because that's what they saw in the home they were raised in. Many people become comfortable with various kinds of abuse and the things that abuse uh, bring in life because they don't know anything else. Well, you know what? If you choose not, you have to choose to change this on purpose. And you've got to be willing to choose to be uncomfortable for a little while. If you're going to change from where you are, something new takes time to adjust to. Yes or no? So here's the question I ask myself. And in various, let me just say this, in various stages of my life, there are things that were dysfunctional in my personality that I didn't know it until years later, sometimes decades later. Within the last five or six years, there are things that were revealed to me I didn't realize were in me. And I had, I had to say, God, that's, that's been in me since I was a child. But I've got to lead differently, so I've got to think differently. And let me just tell you, it made me extremely uncomfortable. I'll be vulnerable to you and tell you now, I'm very uncomfortable about some of the ways I live right now because I know it's right, but because it's something I've not done before. Everybody's looking at me. What is it? I ain't going to tell you. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I could tell you, but I don't have time. I'll tell you, I'm, I'm going to do a whole series on relationship. We'll go into the thick of it. I'm just saying if there's dysfunction in your life, you could become so comfortable you're not willing to change. How many hear me? But listen, if you don't, it'll affect everybody around you. It'll affect your children and then your grandchildren. Listen to what God said. Exodus 34, I lavish unfailing love uh, to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, sin. But I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family's affected. Even children to the third and fourth generation. Wow. So what you do or fail to deal with could infect your children your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren. Do you want that? That's the question. So many families just repeat family patterns. Huh? How many know the, fa the pattern can stop with you? But there's some sweat between you and that stoppage. You got to be willing to change. 
you got to be willing to be uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable. But it's a good uncomfortable. It's like, yeah, God, bring me some more discomfort. <laughs> you know, Because I'm changing. I'm better than I was. I'm not what I was, but I'm going on a journey. Right? So you got to be willing to do that. So what is your personal belief system background? You, can you throw that screen up there? Because i got to move here. There we go. Look at this. How families affect us. Can you all read all that? So here's healthy families. Let's look at healthy families to start with. Let's look at the environment of a healthy family. Is this okay on Sunday morning? Oh, look. The environment of a healthy, a functional family. There's freedom to feel love. Did you know some people are afraid to express love in their home? Freedom to feel love, honesty. I mean, you know, a lot of people are afraid to be honest with others because of what will happen in the home. No, in a healthy home, your freedom to feel love, you can be honest. There's acceptance. Even if you fail, well, I love you, right? There's safety. Regardless of what you do, there's safety. You know you can go home even if you mess up. The prodigal son, Luke 15, he, he threw away his inheritance. He said, you know what? I'd rather be a slave with my daddy than eat pig food. Going home. You know what he found when he got home? Safety. A functional family brings safety. Provision for needs. Loving discipline. What are the results of a healthy family? Love. Anger, what do you mean by anger? Did you know it's unhealthy if you can't express anger? I've met some people, I say, what's wrong with them? They ought to be mad. They're not mad at all. I'd be, I'd be raging mad. <laughs> if you never get angry, you've got a problem. I'm just going to tell you straight up. You know why? You know why you don't get angry? You're afraid of what somebody might do. Yes or no? Now, if you've got anger like me, you better control it because it can kill you and cause you to kill others and hurt yourself. I've met with people broken, broken hands, broken bones, broken cars, broken stuff because of anger, broken relationships. So there's nothing wrong with being angry, just control it. But if you're on the other side, flip side, if you're never angry, you've got a problem, guy. You've got a problem, girl, right? Anger, fear. You know, a, a healthy person, there's some healthy fears, right? I don't have time. Got to move. Laughter. How many know in a healthy home there's laughter? If you were raised in the environment with my children, we laughed a lot. I made sure. I make Susan laugh. She didn't know what to think of me when we first started dating. <laughs> I'm just laughing. Not crazy, but I'd say things and laugh. And she's like, what are you laughing about? She wasn't used to laughing. There was no laughter in her home. A healthy home has laughter. Intimacy. Intimacy defined as into me see. You're not a, a, afraid to reveal yourself. Hmm. Willingness to take risks. And then lastly, security. Did you know it's healthy if you're willing to? Some people won't take risks. They play everything safe. It's the way you're raised, y'all. How many hear me? Motivation for a healthy family. Love, thankfulness. Then obedience out of gratitude. Let's move on because i got to move on. Unhealthy families, what, what are they known by? Environment of a, of a dysfunctional family, addictions, disorders, condemnation, rejection, destructive criticism, manipulation, neglect, abuse. What do I mean by unreality? A person who lives in unreality, there's a white elephant in the room. There's something that's wrong, but nobody will address the problem. 
Did you know I meet a lot of people, particularly today, particularly among the young? Oh, everything's wonderful. Well, no, it's not. That's a problem. You're going to lose all your money. You keep doing that. You're going to lose your health. You keep doing that. Something bad's going to happen if you ignore. But a lot of people live in unreality, denial, same thing, similar. Uh, what are the results of an unhealthy family? Codependency, psychocodependency is a 19, late 1970 word, 70s word for the families of alcoholics who adjusted their behavior because of what the alcoholic did. So if the alcoholic said, so they would say, oh, he's drunk, she's drunk, well, call him and tell him I'm sick. And if they did that, that's codependency. You adjust your behavior because there's a way somebody else is acting. You, you make up for what they're not doing that they should be. You're taking responsibility for their irresponsibility. And then cycle. So again, results of an unhealthy family. Lack of objectivity. What does that mean? You know, a, a person that's objective is able to listen to someone who disagrees with them with a smile. Without feeling threatened or attacked. So you see, you have to ask yourself a question. Am I objective? Can I listen to somebody that disagrees with me and smile? Say, okay. And not think they're attacking my character just because they disagree with me. This is awful today, y'all. How many hear me? Our culture saturated with an inability to be objective. Is it true? It's everywhere. But if you're healthy, you can. A lack of objectivity is a sign of being raised in an unhealthy family. Warped sense of responsibility. That's a person that's overly responsible for everything everybody does around them. If you become responsible for that, you'll always have problems. Yes or no? Or next goes right along with it, controlled or controlling. A person from an unhealthy family, they try to control others, that's fear. Or they're easily controlled by a strong personality. You know, God gave us uh, a will. God gave us an ability to think. And he wants us to use it the right way, yes or no? If you constantly acquiesce to someone else's choices that particularly aren't right, how many know it's a sign that you probably raised an unhealthy family? I know I'm meddling too much now. Let's keep going. Guilt, hurt, anger, loneliness. What are the motivations for an unhealthy family? Uh... <clears throat> this person tries to avoid pain in a number of ways. And so they have coping. It might be drug addiction. It might be sexual addictions. It may be food addictions. Work addictions. A lot of people work because they, if they're not working, they, they get too close to themselves and their thoughts start surfacing. Well, I got to stay busy. I've met lots of, you know, I hate to say a lot of, lot of, well, can I say this? Can y'all take this? Now, this isn't always true. But many times, the hardest working people in a church may be escaping something. Well, so you got to be willing to lay it down, right? Now let's get real, y'all. Is this true? Avoiding pain, fear of rejection, fear of failure. Desperate for self-worth. A lot of people do crazy things. You know, I could say all kinds of things we do today to get self-worth. I won't even meddle a bit with that one because I'll have to take too long. Accomplished to win approval. That's a person that does to feel good about themselves. Those are all signs of an unhealthy family. Uh, so here's a functional family. It's on the screen. 
No, it's not. I'll put a functional family on the screen real quickly here. Unconditional love, unconditional acceptance, forgiveness, laughter, time to work and play together, attention, fun, freedom to express emotions appropriately, a sense of personal worth, compassion, comfort, honesty, freedom to have your own opinion and your own identity, objectivity, talked about that earlier, affirmation, friendship, appropriate responsibility. You got boundaries, right? Loving correction. Here's a dysfunctional thing. So locate yourself. Pastor, you got put up there. Yes, I've got to put this up there. Watch. Dysfunctional family. Alcoholism, drug addiction, workaholism. How many know what workaholism is? A workaholic is like an alcoholic. A workaholic works to get by. Alcoholic drinks to get by. A drug addict uses drugs to get away from something. So a workaholic, they don't feel good unless they're busy. I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a recovering workaholic. <laughs> True story. Divorce, eating disorders, sexual disorders, absent father, absent mother, neglect, verbal abuse. Emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, domineering father, passive mother, opposite domineering mother, passive father, condemnation, rejection, destructive criticism. How many know the proper kind of criticism is good? All of us need that. If somebody loves you, say, can I be real with you? A lot of people know, oh, I don't want you to tell me anything bad. Well, it's trying to help, you know. Uh, let me see where I am. Just here we are. Um, manipulation, neglect, unreality, denial, lack of objectivity, warped sense of responsibility. That is a person that feels responsible for everything everybody else does. Control, guilt, hurt and anger, and loneliness. Man. So it gets quiet when you talk about all this because it hits home, doesn't it? Home is where the heart is. So all of these things I just mentioned, this, with this size crowd... There's people that are, even though it's not right, you're comfortable with it because you've known it for so long. What if you made some changes? Well, the first thing about change is it'll make you uncomfortable. Yes or no? But you gotta be willing to face it. So really, for all of us, the pain, the pain to remain as we are, for us to change, has to be greater than the pain to change. Do you get that? A lot of people aren't willing to change. Well, I've been doing this for 25 years. Been all right so far. It ain't great, but it ain't awful. I can live with it. Well, you're infecting your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-greats. Change. It's not comfortable, right? Anyway, number four, what we often we often can't see who we really are. Now, I've mentioned this a number of times. My friend Chip Judd, who's been here many times, a quote from him, he said, God wants to identify, challenge, and change any patterns of thought, behavior, belief, or behavior that are contrary to his will. Then he said, many of these patterns are so much a part of us that we can't see them without the revelation of God's spirit and the help of other loving Christians. That's why I say, in my way of putting it, you know, you live life through colored glasses of your own experience. You can't see your real problems. If you want to have a really good conversation with your spouse, get a babysitter for the kids, go to your favorite restaurant, eat your favorite food, and when you finish and your belly's feeling nice, ask your spouse one question. 
honey, be real and honest. I'll have a poker face and I'll just listen. What do I need to change? Do you, the first, first answer may be, do you really want to know? <laughs> or I'll get a friend, somebody, somebody you know well. Can you be honest? What do I need to change? What am I doing that's hurtful, aggravating, right? When's the last time you asked somebody that question? That's a great question. If you never ask those questions, it's hard to unmask the problems. Yes or no? Psalm 90, verse 8, this is Amplified Classic, since they have a new edition. Our iniquities, our secret heart, and its sins, which we would so like to conceal even from ourselves, you have set in the revealing light of your countenance. Then Psalm 139, 23, and 24. This is a great prayer. I started praying this prayer for me, I think it was 1985. And when you start praying this prayer, you know, I thought first couple of weeks, God, you must be really proud of me. Nothing's happening after I pray this prayer. You're not revealing anything. But then the barn door opened. Passion translation says, God, I invite your searching gaze into my heart. Examine me through and through. Find out everything that may be hidden within me. Put me to the test and sift through all my anxious cares. See if there's any path of pain I'm walking on. Isn't that good? That's an excellent way to put that. And lead me back into your glorious, everlasting ways, the path that brings me back to you. Isn't that good? Wow. So just start praying that prayer. Say, God, reveal to me. And God may put you in relationships with someone that'll be honest. Is that good? Is that good? It might be somebody at work. Maybe somebody in your family, maybe your spouse, maybe a child, a grown child you're having a conversation with. Or it could just be a trusted friend. Because sometimes, sometimes God speaks through strangers. They don't even know what they're saying. And they start saying something. It's like, oh, you, you're thinking, well, you just shut up. You just shut up. Because they're talking to you. I mean, God talked to Balaam through a donkey. And you know what? He's used a lot of donkeys to talk to me. <laughs> Because I'm thinking, what are you? Uh, you know, you ever thought that's like, you don't have a right to be. And they don't even know what they're saying. You shouldn't be saying that, you know. But if you'll pray that prayer, search me, oh God. Know my heart, test me, and know my thoughts. How many want God's best? Oh, so how many are willing to go through the pain? Necessary to change. Change produces pain. And the degree of pain is determined by the amount of change. So I'm driving my car down a straight road and I got a brand new set of Michelin blah, blah, blah tires on my, new, on my truck. And then I'm doing the speed limit. But then I come on a curve like on I-87 coming into Raleigh going on to 440 and you got to slow her down because centrifugal force causes drift. Then when you hit the curve, you're pulling, putting some rubber down on the road. Yes or no? And your tires are heating up. Why? Uh, change produces friction. The amount of friction is, is determined by how much change. Tire friction is determined by the by the depth of the curve. Life friction is determined by how much change you're going through. Right? 
So are you willing? That's just the question. So here's the thing, you know, God created us, really. Really, if, if we all had God's best and, and Adam hadn't sinned and Eve hadn't looked at the, you know, eaten the forbidden fruit and listened to the devil, if none of that had happened, see, God's plan was out of a love relationship between a man and a woman, babies are born. And then babies are born before the fall of man, before sin. They're born in an environment of love, nurture, care, security, provision, right? So, so, so if everything was perfect, all of us would have non-warped personalities. Because our mom and dad would know how to love. Because they're loved. Adam and Eve were completely loved by God. They knew how to love each other, knew how to love God. But once they sinned, they forgot how to love God and forgot how to relate properly to each other. And that's what their environment we're raised in. So there's no such thing as, as having a family that is absent of dysfunction. That is not possible in the best families. Yes or no? Now let me tell you, I had to cross this bridge. I've told you this before because, you know, first few years of my journey in God, I thought I came from a perfect family. Then I had to deal with workaholic tendencies when I was age 30. And then I had to deal with perfectionism I didn't even know was in my life. I put such pressure on Susan the first seven or eight years of our marriage. I'm not proud of that, but man, I, I, I wept in front of her when I found out the pressure I placed on her as a boy. We were married when I was 20, almost 21. I put such pressure because of my perfectionistic ways. And if you're a perfectionist, everybody's got to do it your way. Because your way is the right way. Because you've already been through all the stuff to prove it's the right way. You, you were just full of pride in yourself. Because that's what I was full of. Now listen, how do you cure all this? God created us to live. In the environment of love. That's the reason, uh, you know, a religious leader asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. That means everything in me. Love him. Obey him. Want him. Invite him. Secondly, love other people while you love yourself. I don't love myself. Give me a hammer. Give me your finger. You love yourself. Yes, you do. Yeah, too much. Without fear, without unconditional love, fear dominates our relationships. I'll close with this because I'm going to give you something on the way out. We'll have a fear of God. If you, if, you, if you have an unhealthy fear of God, you won't open up to Him. Yes or no? You'll feel as though you never measure up and then you're always performing to prove something. So prayer, instead of being fellowship, prayer's brownie points. God loves me. I prayed for X period of time. Or I read, check, check. I read Old Testament, check. Read New Testament, check. I read other things, check. Read some book, check. Helped an old lady across the street, check. Gave some money in the offering, check. I smiled at somebody, check. I said Merry Christmas, check. Doing things to please. Fear of others. If your fear, if your relationships are based on fear, then it could be uh, manipulation, manipulating others, dominating them. How many know that's pride? The bully on the playground, that, that, is the most, that is the most insecure person 
on the field. The person bullying others is unsure of themselves. Or you may live wearing a mask, never letting people know what you're really like. Putting on a false front, a false face. Yes or no? Saying and doing things that you know others will like, so they'll accept you. How many know you can only live that way so, far, so long? Fear, fear of exposure. You may isolate yourself from others. Or, or you could say you may withdraw and not let people see what you're really like. Always projecting a certain image. Yeah. Some people have the mindset, if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. That's the reason people don't talk and won't let others in. They're afraid. What's the cure for all of this, love? So, well, Pastor, you just said a mouthful today, man. You, you left me hanging. What do I do? Here's, here's what you do. Now, here's the way I think. Getting acquainted with love, number seven, will begin to reset your personal belief system. So watch this. So people that deal with currencies, of course, there's less currency now available than ever. So let's say a person works in the bank market, markets and such, and they deal with currencies, the U.S. currency, the dollar. How do you find a false currency? Do you do it by invest in, uh, investigating all the currencies of the world? No. You know, you know the real true currency well, right? So take that same thought pattern. How do I overcome dysfunction? The best way, is to find the real pattern and then compare you to that. If you find the real pattern and compare you to that, it starts a process of change. Now, I started doing what I'm going to tell you. I'm closing with this. Uh, in 19, um, man, 1977, I started reading 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through first part of verse 8 a lot. And I'd read it, read it, they amplified different translations. And it just revealed stuff. So I'm going to end this. Here's what I'm going to do today. That uh, family chart that you saw, I've got it on a piece of paper I'm going to give you on the way out. Is that good? You got two things on the way out. You got a piece of paper and a donut. <laughs> no kidding, donuts. We got donuts. I need to hush and go. The other side... I've got 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, various translations with blanks to put your name in. So instead of saying the word love, put your name there. Or the word him or her, put your name there. So here we are. Let me describe Mitch. He is slow to lose patience. Mitch stays in difficult relationships with kindness. He always looks for ways to be constructive. There's no envy in Mitch. He's not possessive and never boils over with jealousy. Put your name there. Love makes no parade of itself, never boasts, nor does it puff up with pride. Love is never arrogant, never puts itself on display because it's neither anxious to impress, nor does it cherish inflated ideas of, of its own importance. Love never gets irritated and is never resentful. I've gotten this and I've got on my knees and you can't read it fast, read it slow. And you know what happens? Everything you're not starts coming up. And when you see something you're not, say, God, I'm not that. I confess that. I did this to this person. I said that to that person. I acted this way at work. Forgive me. Help me. And you just read it out loud. How many hear me? 
Love holds no grudges, keeps no record of evil done to him or her. Love refuses to be provoked and never harbors evil thoughts. Love is not rude or grasping or overly sensitive, nor does love search for imperfections and faults in others. It does not compile statistics of evil or gloat over the wickedness of other people. On the contrary, it's glad with all good men when truth prevails. Love celebrates what is real, not what is perverse or incomplete. Love never does the graceless thing. Love has good manners, does not pursue selfish advantage. It never insists on its own rights, never irritably loses its temper, uh-oh, never nurses its wrath to keep it warm. Love is not touchy. Hmm. Love can stand any kind of treatment because there are no limits to its endurance nor end to its trust. Love bears up under anything. It perseveres in all circumstances. Love's first instinct is to believe in people. If you love someone, you'll be loyal to him no matter what the cost. You'll always believe in him, always expect the best in him, always stand your ground in defending him. Love never regards anyone or anything as hopeless. Love keeps up hope in everything, and love's hope never fades. Love keeps on keeping on. Trust God. I quit. Love keeps on. It trusts God to act in every situation, expects God to act in all circumstances. It goes on forever. Nothing can destroy love. Nothing can happen that can break love's spirit. In fact, it's the one thing that still stands when all else has fallen. Isn't that good? That's various translations of that. It's awesome. So, I got a paper. It's got blanks. Put your name into blanks. Every day, say it out loud. And take some time and meditate it. That is, go slow. Say it slow, and when you say something that you're not, acknowledge it and ask God to help you change it. And here's what will happen. Here's what's been happening to me. You're starting to say something, or you're starting to get aggravated with somebody, and you'll hear, love believes the best. Love's patient. Love is kind. Shut up. Love's not touchy. Huh? You'll hear these things inside, because he'll tag something in you. How many want him to do it? So as we close, open your heart, ask God to show your own beliefs. And this is important. Find somebody you can talk to. That's why we have small groups here, y'all. Don't just come to church on Sunday and think everything's hunky-dory. No, it's not. Unless, unless you fellowship with somebody else and talking, you don't have a forum for change. The forum for change is relationships with others. Otherwise, you isolate and stay the same.